If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. That is 1 John 3, verses 17 to 18, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. That verse I just read reminds me of something from St. Augustine, who said, Love is a sweet word, but a sweeter deed. I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. If we want to talk about the difference that the Word of God makes in our lives, it has to start here. How does it affect how we act, especially in how we love others, including the poor and the marginalized, even those we might not want to care for? Here to share what she has gleaned from Scripture about God's heart for the poor and our responsibility is Shannon Wimp-Schmidt. Shannon has been on this podcast before talking about the radical choice to trust God and things we can learn from some of the biblical women who lived on the outskirts in their day. Shannon, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you again on the Living the Word Bible podcast. Thanks, Sarah. I'm so excited to be back. I love this podcast, so I was delighted to get a second invitation. Oh, good. Well, I'm really glad that you're here today. And now, just to introduce you a little bit, Shannon, you are an author and a podcast host, a wife and mother of four. You work for the Archdiocese of Chicago as a parish vitality coordinator. What else would you like people to know about you? I think I would say I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ trying to figure this all out with you, which is probably something I said on the last podcast as well, because that's my standard introduction. <laughs> that it must be true. And, you know, I have recently like really been living into my role as a parent now that all my kids are in school. I'm like getting involved in all the extracurriculars and the volunteering mm. and in our parish. and. It's funny how different it is to me now than it was when I was either working at a parish or just, um, you know, my kids were little. Now to be really like back in the life of the church as a family is such a delight. And so uh, that's really where I am right now is like living family life and trying to teach my kids what it means to love Jesus and finding solace and challenge in scripture along the way. <laughs> so. Wonderful. That's a good place to be. So one of the things I love about you is your love for people on the margins. And that is why uh, we asked you to write several essays, actually, on different aspects of Catholic social teaching for the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. And before we dive into our topic, I wonder if you could tell us just in a nutshell, you know, what is Catholic social teaching? One of my favorite topics. So Catholic social teaching is the church's collection of teaching around social issues. Um, sometimes people call it Catholic social doctrine, so you'll hear that phrase too. And it's various encyclicals from the popes, various writings from the bishops, all of those things <laughs> that are about how we learn and relate to the world as disciples of Jesus Christ? How do we apply all of the church's teaching throughout its history, what we know about God and what we know from scripture to our way of living in society as people who are not just here for ourselves, but engaged in the pursuit of the common good? And so there are seven themes that you'll see in Catholic social teaching 
which are as follows. <laughs> First, the life and dignity of the human person. Uh, that's the foundation of everything in Catholic social teaching, that uh, every human being has the right to life and has inherent dignity simply from being created, right? And we we get that from Genesis chapter one, <laughs> that uh, we are created in God's image and likeness and that we share in his divine life. We also see the theme of uh, a call to family, community, and participation. As human beings, we are not just individuals, but we are social beings, that we live in a society. We are born into a family, and so we are called to participate in society from that. We also each have rights and responsibilities, of course, the fundamental being the right to life, but then we have other rights, the right to, uh, you know, have healthcare and food and water and a place to live, all of those things. Uh, and with each of those rights, there's corresponding responsibilities. So we also have a responsibility to the common good as well. You'll also hear a lot of talk about the option for the poor and vulnerable, which I know we're going to talk about when we dig into scripture. But the idea that uh, as Christians, we have to think about how our actions impact the poor and vulnerable, and that they have a special place in our thought, especially as we think about uh, the world and society around us. The fifth one, we got to five, is the dignity and rights of workers. So the dignity of work, the rights of workers. Work is good and workers have rights. Uh, and that work is part of our human experience that gives us meaning and purpose. We also talk about the theme of solidarity, that as human beings, we are in solidarity with each other. We share a human experience. We share our uh, brotherhood and sisterhood as children of God created in his image, uh, and that we walk alongside others in solidarity. And finally, the last theme of Catholic social teaching is care for creation. If you've read Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, that's like the number one uh, writing on, on the care for creation, right? But that creation is a gift that God has given to us, that he has created it, and that we are to be stewards of caring for his creation. So those are the seven themes of Catholic social teaching. You can read more about them on the U.S. Catholic Bishops website or um, Catholic Relief Services has great resources. So you can dig into Catholic social teaching that way. Well, thank you for that nice summary. I was really struck as you were talking by how personal it all feels. You know, we hear Catholic social teaching, and it sounds kind of dry and maybe finger-wagging or something, but what you were saying sounds full of love, so thank you for that. A few minutes ago, you said that Catholic social teaching is your favorite topic. Why is that? I think I'm, in general, a very practical person. So when I uh, read about Jesus, when I read uh, the church's teaching, I'm like, this is wonderful. How do I live that out in my life? And like Catholic social teaching, it, it's not dictating what exact actions you should take, but it's telling you like, here are the things that you need to consider. And here's how this applies to social situations, to the law, to um, the way that I interact or, or participate in my own community. And I would also say it's the hidden gem of the Catholic Church. So few people really know about Catholic social teaching and really understand what it is. And I think especially in our day and age, when we are grappling with what does it mean to live in the modern world with the technology we have, with the political, socioeconomic challenges we have, and 
people are looking for answers for that and they feel that religion doesn't have them. But mm. actually, as Catholics, we do. We have a, we have a whole uh, wealth of guidance on how to think about what it means to be a human being who works for the common good. So I get really excited about that. Well, Shannon, I look forward to talking with you about some of the specifics. Uh, but first of all, it seems to me like a lot of times when we talk about how we practice our faith, we focus more on how often we go to Mass. You know, do we go to daily Mass? Do we go to confession? How do we celebrate the liturgical seasons? Things like that. You know, all these religious practices, which are wonderful and necessary, but I'm intrigued by some of the Old Testament prophets who say that's not enough, that true worship includes working for justice, showing mercy, caring for the poor and the oppressed. It's actually, it's not just the prophets. You know, James defined pure religion as looking after orphans and widows in their distress. What do you make of this? You know, how, how is this true worship, true religion? I think if we look at the spiritual experience, certainly in the Catholic tradition, but also in, in any other religious tradition, when we measure, quote unquote, the effectiveness of, of a religious expression in a person, um, it is always defined by a sense of being more open, more compassionate, more um, demonstrative of an interior peace and love and care for the other. So from a very practical sense, like that's how we're built as humans, right? If, if we're doing spirituality correctly, quote unquote, uh, we are going to hopefully be transformed. Uh, the closer that we are to God, the more we are transformed to be like him. Again, from our own tradition, from our own perspective as Catholics, I think that when we think about the sacraments, when we think about uh, the mass, all of the ways that we worship, even things like adoration, right? Those practices, as you said, Sarah, are meant to feed us in order that we go out, right? The whole point of the mass is to be sent out. <laughs> the whole point of, of the sacraments is to demonstrate our belovedness from God, to pour out God's grace upon us so that we can be transformed for mission. Uh, if you think about the sacrament of confirmation, uh, right, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, given the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we read in Isaiah 11, to be able to then be sent out as witnesses. Uh, even the Eucharist, right, we receive God's body and blood in order that we may be transformed to be more like him. And who is he? <laughs> He's a God who, again, as you said at the beginning of the episode, loves so deeply and is in such closeness with human beings that he offers his very life. He gives and he gives and he gives. We see that in Jesus's teaching too, right? Who are, who are the people that he criticizes? It's not the people who are religious, because there's plenty of people who are religious who are following him. In fact, probably most of the people there would have been uh, following Jesus would have been good Jews who went, you know, to Shabbat <laughs> dinners and had uh, went to synagogue. All those things. The people he criticizes are the ones whose hearts do not reflect their outward actions in worship. Right? If my outward action is to offer this sacrifice to the Lord that's symbolic of me giving my whole self to him and becoming dependent on him, but then inwardly and in my actions towards others, I actually demonstrate the opposite. 
that's the problem, right? The, the hypocrisy, not the religion. Um, and that theme is woven throughout scripture. <laughs> so um, yeah, it is. yeah, I'm, I'm all for that interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> I don't always live it well, but I hear it at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the goal. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get on to the meat of this, which um, I'd love to just dive into some of the scriptures, especially the New Testament scriptures, you know, to find out what Jesus had to say about our care for the poor and what we can learn from that. So do you want to, you want to start, maybe is there a, a particular parable that really stands out to you as shedding light on how we should take care of the poor? Yes, I love all the parables because I think they are uh, one of the things that always strikes me about the parable is how Jesus uses everyday images of sort of um, working class people all the time, right? Shepherds and, you know, the woman needing dough and (laughs) cleaning her house or whatever. so, so just in the way that Jesus tells his parables, he's not telling them from the perspective of, you know, the emperor or the people in, in who are living in wealth, but from the poor. But as we were talking about this and, and kind of emailing back and forth this week, the one thing I really just latched onto was the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So if we mm-hmm. remember, this is in Matthew 20, verses 1 to... 16, the man who owns a vineyard goes out, hires some laborers who are um, day laborers in the morning, sends them off to the field, realizes he needs some more. So he goes back a little bit later, sends them out to the field. And then it says, you know, he went about five o'clock. He's just out back there and he sees others standing around being idle. And he says, why, why have you been standing here idle? And they say, no one's hired us. And he sends them out to the vineyard. Then he goes to pay them and he starts with the ones who started last first, right? So those five o'clock people who are standing around all day. Who did almost nothing. Exactly. (laughs) They worked for like an hour or maybe. Also, if we think about day laborers, this is true still, right? The ones who are still there at the end of the day are the ones that nobody wants, right? Like they may be the the ones who aren't as young anymore or they're not as efficient, right? They're like not the best workers. They're they're the ones who are left out, left behind. Then the the man, the owner of the vineyard, pays them first and he gives them a full day's wage. So everybody else is like, oh, that's really great, super generous, great. Like we must be getting more. Big bonus and, coming our way, right? <laughs> exactly. We're gonna get a bonus because we were there. Um, and they find out as they as we go backwards and pay everybody who's been in the vineyard for either part of the day or the full day that they get paid the same amount. Um, and they're grumbling, of course, which is a very human reaction. I think I would be a little <laughs> miffed oh, yeah. right, if someone got the same amount. And the owner says, I'm doing you no wrong. This is verse 13. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give you the last, the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And we hear this scripture all the time at Mass and we hear it preached on often. And of course it is Jesus talking about uh, who enters the kingdom of God and how we 
um, as believers should welcome people of all stripes and, and to not be upset that those who have a conversion later in life or who haven't right put in all the work we have are allowed to have the same gift of God because it's about God's generosity and not about us. So that's a very standard interpretation of the passage and I think what Jesus implies. But the thing that interests me about this parable is not only that uh, interpretation, but also it's a challenge to us if we think about it in a very practical sense of the way we live our lives in a social setting and, and economically, right? When we think about work, when we think about the poor, we see a lot in our political system, people saying like, well, you should have to work before you get food stamps, or you should have to meet this criteria before you get that. Or why should somebody who works less than I do also have this, that, and the other thing, right? A social service or things that are provided through our, our government. And not trying to get into the the political policy ramifications of that, right? Like that's not what we're talking about. But what I think this biblical story brings to light is our attitude towards those we see as less, as useless, as not working as hard, or even you know, for those of us like myself who are who are well off, uh, what they deserve based on the work that they do versus the work we do. Or, you know, that they are poor because they are lazy, right? All of these, all of these ways that we justify ourselves having more or that we expect to have more than the other. I think this parable challenges that to say, actually, everyone needs their basic needs met, right? Everyone needs a daily wage, Um and the reasons that someone are, are left behind, that they're considered lesser, that they get picked up at five rather than at 9 a.m., are varied, right? Uh, it could be that someone in this parable was elderly and still needed to work and just didn't have the same energy or stamina. Does that mean that they should not have enough food? <laughs> Does that mean that they should not be able to earn a wage simply because from the outside or because from a utilitarian perspective, they were less useful in the vineyard. I think if we really examine our hearts as Christians, we would say, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> of course someone should be able to have what they need. And that does not mean that those who have more are automatically meant to sort of say, okay, well, we can't have anything or, uh, you know, I earned X amount of money, so I can't go on vacation because, you know, the poor can't go on vacation, but rather to challenge how do we think of the other in relation to ourselves and are the things that we're defining ourselves by our abilities, our, what we have, or is it in our common dignity as human beings, our common rights and responsibilities, our common life that we have together. Well, that is a challenge. I mean, it, it is complicated. And scripture also says, you know, if anyone would not work, then neither should he eat. And so there is, you know, there's laziness, and then there's plenty of people who, you know, 
they weren't chosen till five o'clock because there was a real problem there. So I think you're right to point at our attitude and in the way we judge, we tend to judge different situations and people and so on and, you know, lump them all in a, in a convenient place where we can just forget about them <laughs> uh, instead of having compassion and reaching out and uh, lots of food for thought there. So thank you. Um, what about any other parables or maybe in one of the miracles of Jesus? Is there something that, that you see? I think the miracles of Jesus are interesting because they also show a lot of, of care for the poor. But I think in particular, like this is where you see the miracles. It's where you see Jesus um, exercising what we call the option for the poor. Because you see that he, when he heals, when he multiplies the loaves and fishes, right? It's always to meet a need and it's always out of compassion. And one that always really sticks out to me is um, when Jesus raises the widow's son at Nain, which is in uh, Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. What always sticks out to me, so this this woman, he's passing through Nain, which is a, a Gentile town, um, and he sees this woman whose son, only son, has died. And it says in verse 13, he said, it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said, do not weep. Mm. And then he brings the man back to life. People, you know, the people glorify God. And this is wonderful. But what I love about that is that Jesus is moved out of compassion to help her because she, as a widow who's lost her only son, she has no one to support her in society. So she's, she's about to be left in basically abject poverty. And that is what motivates him. Mm. Uh, not anything to do with her worthiness, not anything to do with whether or not she was even Jewish, because she wasn't. She was a, she was Gentile, um, right? She was. It wasn't about her religious practice or anything. It was that he felt compassion for her because he understood what situation she was in on top of her grief, right? Mm -hmm. And and so he raises her son and restores him to life for her, and gives her the opportunity then to live this life that is full, a more full, right? Jesus wants us to have abundant life. It's not about who she is, but rather what he sees, right? That, mm. that he sees that she is vulnerable, she's poor, and she needs something. And that that's what he considers first. And that's what we should consider first as well, <laughs> if we want to be like him. I'd like to get back to something that you said earlier, where you mentioned that, you know, not only is it important that Jesus and striking that Jesus reached out to people and helped them in this way, but that it's something he really expects his followers to do. And is there a place in scripture that you see where he actually reaches out and tells them that or gives guidelines? Because it's kind of nice for Jesus to do all these things, but I can't raise from somebody from the dead. Wouldn't it be great if we could? <laughs> but often I feel like, you know, I don't have money or, you know, I don't have the wherewithal or whatever is needed to help this person. So anything he says along those lines. Yeah, I think there's many places. One place I definitely think of is the commissioning of the 12 in the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. So this is Matthew chapter 10. Uh, it's verses five through 15. 
so this is right after Jesus calls the 12 and he's assembled them and, and they're about to go off. And he gives them these instructions. This is starting in verse 7. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You will receive without payment and give without payment. Then he says something very in, intense. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals or a staff for laborers deserve, deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. So basically he's telling the apostles go like you're going to go, you're going to cast out demons. You're going to heal the sick. Like you're going to do all these amazing things. I give you my power, my authority to do that. However, make yourselves completely poor and dependent, right? Like, like don't take money. Don't take extra shoes. Don't take an extra set of clothes, right? Like who among us would go and do that if we were about to go travel for weeks at a time? (laughs) That's crazy, right? I, I certainly wouldn't do it. And he says, and I think this is what sticks with me, right? You received without payment, give without payment. Uh, He's sending them out to do these wonderful things in an attitude of complete dependence and trust on God, right? He's asking them to become poor themselves so that they can rely fully on God, that they're forced to rely on others, and that they are able to basically be present in a way that they couldn't, to, to not have any expectations of what might come next. And so Jesus is asking us to become poor, not only in our material goods, right, the disciples, but also in their attitude, right, to become impoverished so that they may be open and dependent on God. Uh, and we can see that in some way, I think, as a reflection of why Jesus talks in the Beatitudes about becoming poor in spirit, right? Not all of us are going to be poor in material goods, but when we have a, an openness and a heart for those who are poor and vulnerable, when we let go of our attachment to material things and allow ourselves to become dependent on God, allow ourselves to be used by God. And in this sense, uh, as the apostles do, right, allow our resources, our gifts, our talents to be used by God for a purpose, whatever they are, whether we are able to give that money at that time or whether we're just able to uh, pray or give our time and our talents, that that is what Christ is about, right? Of asking us to become poor in the spirit so that we may become open to God and all that God has in store for us. And we're more present to the other, that we find those who need us, find those who are open to hearing what the gospel has to say to their lives because we're not focused on anything except where God is leading us. Hmm. So Shannon, how has knowing these things impacted your life personally? I think my life has taken different trajectories because of my time with Catholic social teaching in general, but also many of these Bible passages we've talked about today. Uh, I think especially when I was young, uh, and uh, I have an undergraduate degree in theology, so I was reading a lot of scripture during when I was studying in college. 
And I couldn't help but be affected by the way that God talks to first his people, Israel, and then later through, through the gospels and the letters to his church, that this was a very important part of what it meant to be in a covenant relationship with the Lord, that it wasn't just about doing the right kind of worship or having the right God, even though it's important that we have God uh, as our only God, but the way that we live out our covenant, our commitment, our baptism as, as Catholics is by showing who God is to others through our actions, right? That, that that has to be inclusive of a care for the poor and the vulnerable and a living out of my faith in every aspect of my life as part of that. And so, um, you know, when I take a, a job, let's say if I'm looking for a new job, which I'm not looking for a new job, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but, um, one of the things I always consider is not necessarily how much money I'm going to make or uh, what position I have and whether it's something I like, but also how does this reflect the care that God has for his people, especially for the poor and vulnerable? Uh, if I have influence in a specific situation or societal power, political power, whatever that is, what uh, my own vote, that needs to be reflective of who God is the word of God and what God calls me to. It hasn't been an easy journey because I think it it makes it hard to live in our society because as wonderful as our culture can be, it also has tendencies to look down on the poor, the vulnerable, the disabled, right? You name it, um, people who are marginalized and to um, shut them out of society. So if if our society doesn't have a use for you, quote unquote, it often just leaves you in the dust. And that's a hard place to be. It also puts you in a place where oftentimes you may be choosing what looks on the outside as a worse choice or a choice that puts you out of favor with those in power or a choice that makes things harder. And so it's been a hard balance, I think, to figure out what that means for my life. As someone who has a family and, you know, wants my family to have, um, you know, the food they need and the house they need and all of that. And also who cares very deeply about making sure everyone knows that they are beloved. Everyone knows that they have a place in the kingdom of God and that God cares about them because it, it's very easy for me to live a life in which I could be comfortable and to ignore some of the problems of society and ignore uh, the things that make me feel uncomfortable. But what I know about God, and especially from his word, is that actually that's the place where Christ resides mm -hmm. and I need to go find him among the poor and the vulnerable. That is beautiful. I hope we have time for one more question because you have little children. And I'm sure just knowing you that you want to pass these things on. Are there little things you do with them to try to start building habits or attitudes in them in this area? One of the things we always do whenever we say grace, not always, sometimes I forget before our meals. I always thank God for those who made the food, whose hands went into making for it, and also for those who go without 
whenever we pray as a family, we try to always keep in mind the poor and the vulnerable, whether that's if we're driving on the highway and we see an accident just to pray, right? Or, or to pray for the sick or things like that. So, so the things that we do just naturally as, as a Catholic family, like saying grace, we try to do that there. Um, we've also tried to get them involved at age appropriate times with different forms of service and not just, you know, like folding the bulletins, like, although that's really great (laughs) for them to be able to serve the church itself. Um, But to, uh, you know, my husband and I have been lucky enough to work in Catholic schools and and Catholic churches. So when we have, um, you know, a night we're going to feed the homeless, they go with us. Or when uh, they have an opportunity to do a clothing drive or something as they're able, you know, when they were three years old, we certainly weren't taking them with us, but uh, especially now we have a teenager now and, and getting him more involved in that has been lovely. And then we also really try hard to talk about societal issues. So one of the things we talk about a lot in our house is uh, racism. That's something that uh, obviously is important to me as a, as a biracial African-American woman. It's been on a topic of conversation in our in our nation re- recently as well. So when they hear about those things in society or like at school or on the news or whatever, um, we we talk about them and we talk about how we feel. We talk about how God, right, what God says in His Word, what what um, the church teaches us. We try to be very open and honest again at an age appropriate level with them about what is going on in the world. Because what I know as a parent is that if I don't show my kids how to be a disciple, then no one else is. And I don't mean that they don't have wonderful influences in their lives, right? But I I am in fact the most important influence on them in their childhood. And it doesn't mean I have to teach them everything or know everything about the church. Sometimes it's just about teaching them where to find something. But it is about me being honest about my own journey as a disciple and about being a witness to them, right? They will see who Christ is hopefully through how I live my life. So my example and what I do and the way I talk to them about how I think about things and how I think about bringing my faith to my life is an important piece of that. And that's the hard part because it's it's hard to talk to your kids about all this stuff, right? Yeah. It is. Well, kids watch what you're doing too. And I think even simple things like, you know, noticing there's an elderly woman across the street from you and, hey, it snowed and can we go shovel her walk? Or, you know, just to help them to keep their eyes open to the needs of those around them. And we don't have to ask even, you know, sometimes we can just go do something or we can knock on their door with a you know, some fresh eggs or, or whatever. I have some lovely neighborhood children who are setting the example in that <laughs> where I live now. Anyway, I think those little things can go a long way just to developing an awareness. So I know we could talk about this for a long time, but I would love for you to share with us a favorite scripture passage that's related to this. So the one I always go to, not only because she's our blessed mother, but because I love it, is the Magnificat, which is in Luke 2, uh, verses 45 and following. What I love about that is like we often think about Mary as this like meek and humble woman, which she, she certainly was humble and all this. But her response to Elizabeth acknowledging her as the mother of the Lord, her response, the first time she speaks after the Holy Spirit comes upon her, 
at the Annunciation, right? And, and she conceives Jesus in her womb is the Magnificat. And what does she say? Like, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon his lowly servant. And, um, and uh, right, he has lifted up the lowly. He has uh, turned the rich away empty, right? She's, he's cast down the mighty from their throne. She's basically like, God has overturned the world and he has entered into solidarity with the poor and the meek and the ones who are left behind. And the greatest thing that God has ever done, which he's doing in me, has come about. And it has shown how much God wants everyone to be liberated, to have fullness of life, and for this the systems that oppress us the the ways that the world has um continually pushed down people because whether it's their vulnerability their poverty whatever it is uh, actually god is going to overturn that because mm-hmm. he has given us a savior and mary's real feisty and fiery and i love and right it is a revolution as as pope francis calls it a revolution of tenderness that is the revolution god is calling for is is right why does god cast down the mighty from their thrones so that everyone might experience the tenderness love and mercy of jesus christ well on that note i will read mary's magnificat and close us in prayer Come, Holy Spirit. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his posterity forever. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might recognize the poor and vulnerable among us and share what we have with them. Help us to treat others justly and uphold their dignity, to make peace and work for justice. Help us to love others with your love, especially those we're tempted to think don't deserve it. Make us channels of your aid. Thank you for your word and for the life and strength it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. Shannon, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we close? Thanks for having me. May God bless and keep you always. Where can we find out more about your books and ministry? So you can find our book, Fat Luther Slim Pickens, on Ave Maria Press website, uh, avemariapress.com. 
gmail.com. <laughs> and then uh, you can find me on uh, various social media platforms at Team Quarter Black. Uh, or you can listen to our podcast, which is Plaid Skirts and Basic Black, on anywhere you find podcasts. <laughs> Great. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Join me every Thursday for conversations with women like Shannon who love and live God's Word. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review to help others find us as well. You can also join our Instagram community, which you can find at Living the Word Bible. I look forward to seeing you there. And may God bless you richly as you read His Word.